Let's stand together. One of the greatest biblical texts in the Bible is ours today. And um, we are reading Exodus chapter, uh, Exodus chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 15. And uh, if you're following in the story Bible, it's about page, um, let me get it for you here. It's about page uh, 45. Um, and uh, I'm going to read the blue. It's a bit of a long text. Um, and I'm going to read the blue. You're going to read the white. This is what it says. And this is what it says. And it says this. Can you advance the first slide for me? Is there a problem? It worries me. Pastor Scott is up there. There we are. Okay, here we go. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, the mountain of God, Horeb, is where Moses is going to receive the Ten Commandments and the fire of the Lord is going to come down and the thunder and the lightning, all of that. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name shall call me from generation to generation. 
Let's pray together. Father, again, we just pause and give you thanks and praise for your love and for your grace and your mercy and your generosity that you have exhibited in, through, and as Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit that takes what you've accomplished in Jesus and makes it applicable and available and possible in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to comprehend, and particularly as we go out into our world, in our relationships, our marriages, our families, our neighborhoods, our, where we get our education, where we go to school and where we go to work and where we do our recreation and where we buy our services and get our services, that we will, by the same Spirit, live out what it means to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ in practical, tangible, and meaningful ways. So help us, God, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. You may be seated. So we're looking at chapter 4, which is the story of deliverance. Now, last week... Uh, Josh, I'm getting a ring here. Oh, they're working on it. Last week, we talked about how that God had brought the uh, nation family of Jacob slashed Israel down to Egypt so they could survive the famine. And he did that by putting Joseph in the right place at the right time. Today, we're talking about how God now is going to get them out of Egypt and he's going to do that in order that they can survive the oppression that they are under. And he's going to do that by using Moses in the right place at the right time. Now, this getting them out of Egypt is what we call the Exodus. Exodus literally means going out. And we read these words in Deuteronomy where when the, the younger children and the younger generation were to ask their fathers and their mothers about the Exodus, this is what they were to say, that we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand before our eyes. The Lord sent signs and wonders great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household, and he brought us out from there to bring us up and give us the land he promised an oath to our forefathers. Now, when the Jewish people, I was telling the gang a couple of uh, Wednesday nights ago at Bible study, when the Jewish people wanted to illustrate, give an example of the greatness and the magnitude of God, they would point to God's act of creation. After God led the people of Israel out of Egypt, when the people of Israel and the Jewish people wanted to illustrate and to give an example of the greatness and the magnitude of God, they replaced the creation with the story of the Exodus. Because the story of the Exodus is the second mightiest and greatest act of deliverance that the world has ever seen. Matter of fact, an entire theology is built around this idea, around the exodus of liberation, liberation theology. 
But the Exodus also points to not the second mightiest, greatest act of God's deliverance, but it points to the single most mightiest, greatest act of God's deliverance from all time. Now, the story of the Exodus does not begin with the text that we just read in Exodus chapter 3 just a few minutes ago. The story of Exodus begins in Exodus chapter 1, the book of Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. And if you've got a story Bible, it's page 43. And it begins with this guy, the Pharaoh who forgot. Exodus 1.8 says these words, Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Now, Israel, Israel's, Jacob's family nation, has been in the land of Egypt for centuries by this time. And by this time, this nation of Israel is in danger of annihilation. It's in danger of whether or not it's going to survive. And this is what we are told. We are told in Exodus chapter 1 verse 7 that the family of Israel has become quite sizable. Matter of fact, it says in, Genesis, in Exodus chapter 1 verse 7, it says that the whole land was filled with them. They were everywhere. And then it says that a new pharaoh comes to power who did not know his nation's history and did not know what Joseph had done not only to save Egypt but to save Israel. Now this is what happens or one of the things that happens when leaders forget history. We are told that this new pharaoh, this new leader, this new king that he was intimidated by the size of Israel's nation, of this family. And he was fearful that there was going to be a coup d'etat, that there was going to be a Hebrew takeover. So he did two things. The first thing that he did is that he reduced the nation, the family, to a family of slaves. And the second thing that we're told that he did to dial up the persecution notch just one more is that he ordered the murder, the execution, the infanticide of all the Hebrew baby boys. We are told in Exodus 1, 12, that the more that, they, that, the more that Pharaoh oppressed the nation of Israel, the more they grew. Now, there's a couple of questions that arise out of this text that need to be addressed. The first one is this. Did the 400 years of slavery take God by surprise? Was God surprised that when he led down, when he led Jacob and Israel, or slash Israel down to Egypt and his 70 family members via Joseph, was God surprised that they actually ended up in slavery, being a nation of slaves? And the answer to that question is no. Always remember this. God always has an answer prepared in the Bible for every question that's ever going to be asked. That's his foreknowledge. 
And here's the answer to the question. No, and God reveals in Genesis chapter 15, he says to Abraham, they're going to go down there and they're going to be a nation of slaves, but I am going to deliver them. God is never surprised. And can I say to you this morning that God is never surprised about what happens in our lives or what is going to happen in our lives. He knows the end from the beginning and he's already at the end of our lives and he's already in tomorrow. It's called the eternal now. God is there and he already knows what's going to happen in your life in the next week, months, and years. He doesn't preordain it because that's not the God that he is. We have, a, we have our own sense of volition and will. We are free beings. But that doesn't take away the fact that God knows what's going to unfold in your life in the next month, in the next year, in the next five years, and the next ten years. And because he's never surprised and because he always knows, he is always prepared to meet you at that place. Now that's good news, is it not? The other question that comes out of the text is this. Well, since God predicted the slavery, did God cause the slavery? That's always a good question, right? One of the questions that comes up all the time is, does God cause evil? Does God cause problems? And the answer to that question, of course, is no. It resulted in the ego and the insecurity and the fear and the intimidation and the sin of an Egyptian pharaoh. See, God does not stop human beings from being human beings. God is not going to stop me and you from doing whatever it is we want to do. Whether it's good or bad. That's the way he made us and he knew that when he decided to make us the way he made us. God does not stop us from doing what we want to do and being who we want to be. But neither does he allow it to thwart or to foil his plan and his purpose. Matter of fact, God will often use that which we do and that which we become to actually bring about his purpose and his plan in our lives. And many of us in this room and watching online are witnesses of that reality. So the new Pharaoh may have forgot, but God did not. God did not forget. And the fact that he did not forget is seen in God's compassion for his suffering people. There's a text in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, that I think is one of the most powerful, smallest, but powerful texts in the entire Bible. And this is what it says. But whoever loves God is known by God. Whoever loves God is known by God. Do you know that you are known by God? He knows your address. He knows where we work. He knows our email address, our Twitter account. He knows our social insurance number. He knows it all. And he knows what it is that we are going through or not going through. And it reveals the fact that he is a God of love. That God, that you are known by God. 
But listen to the text again that we read. In Exodus 3, 7 to 9, listen to what he says. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out, and I am concerned about their suffering. And I have come down to rescue them, and I have seen the way that the Egyptians have treated them, have oppressed them. Now, before we get to the main character of the story, there's a couple of people I want to mention who deserve more than just a mention. But it gives us some idea of how God deals with his people and his compassion. The first ones are the midwives, Shipra and Pua. How would you like a name? How come nobody names their child Pua? Like, what do you think of that? Shipra and Pua. Now, these are two gutsy, courageous, fearless women in the story. And I suspect there are more of them. Matter of fact, I think that Shipra and Pua should get their own TV series on Netflix. Yeah, I know. Pharaoh tells them, I want you to abort the Hebrew sons. And we read this in Exodus 1-7. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, and they let the boys live. And then we read this in verses 20 and 21. So, the, so God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous and because of the midwife, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So that's the midwives, Shipra and Pua. And then comes Jochebed. Now, Jochebed is the mother of Moses, and this woman is gutsy and fearless and courageous. And I might say, a tad brilliant. Listen to what it says of her and her husband in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child. We all think that about our children, don't we? Especially about our grandchildren. They are no ordinary child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, here's the deal on Jochebed. First of all, she hides her son for three months. Now, that got to be incredibly stressful. What if he cries, and what if those, someone hears him, and, and he, the, the game is up? On top of that, she hatches this ingenious plan. And the plan is to build a little boat and to sail little Moses down to Pharaoh's daughter. And to put... Pharaoh's sister, Miriam, in place. So when the princess asks, whose child is this? Miriam is right there to say, hey, I got a great nurse for him. It's a great story. And so she sails him down to Pharaoh's, prince, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, the princess. And the princess, of course, raises him in Egyptian culture. But before that happens... Jochebed gets to raise her own son. And 
she gets paid for it. Ingenious. Now, if it wasn't for Shipra and Pua, which I love saying, by the way, Shipra and Pua. If it wasn't for Shipra and Pua and Jochebed, we wouldn't have the main character. And his name, of course, is Moses. Now, what do we know about him? First of all, we know that he was born to a family of slaves in slavery. He was raised, educated, and cultured in, as an Egyptian. As a, an adult, he realizes, comes to the place where he recognizes he's not an Egyptian, he's actually Hebrew. And then he does something that is so typically human and so typically us, it's unbelievable. He decides that he's going to take matters into his own hands and he's going to help the cause along. And so he sees these two Hebrew brothers fighting and he gets in between them, or sorry, rather an Egyptian and a Hebrew, and he gets in between them and he accidentally or on purpose kills the Egyptian person. That's what happens when we take matters into our own hands. Uh, we had a, a lady in a church, a husband and wife, and they bought this old schoolhouse and they renovated it into, this, um, into the, their home. And they were doing a great job. But they had water problems. And so the man was dragging his heels on dr drilling a well and all that kind of stuff. So um, when he was away for a few days, she called the drilling company. And they drilled down, and they didn't realize, but they struck an artesian well. And the water came so fast that it started to wash their house away. They had to spend $110,000 to bring in a cement company to actually fill it in again so their house would survive. That's what happens when we run ahead of the plan. Things get complicated. One thing leads to the next, and we find Moses in our text. In Exodus 3, and he is in the desert, and he's watching over his father-in-law's sheep. Now, I'm not sure which is worse there. Watching over sheep, or that the sheep belongs to my father-in-law. I'll leave that with you. But that brings us to this. The fact that God does not forget is first of all seen in his compassion for his suffering people. But secondly, the fact that God does not forget is seen in God's actions. And that brings us to our text. And in our text, God does four things. Four, he takes four actions. The first action is that he shows Moses and us the indestructibility of God's plan and purpose, and he does that through the burning bush incident. God uses the burning bush to get Moses' attention. Now, but technically, in the biblical text, it's not really the burning bush that gets Moses' attention, is it? It is the fact that the bush is burning and it hasn't burned up. It is a perpetual burning machine. 
In desert heat of 50 to 60 degrees Celsius, it would not be unusual for a bush to just spontaneously combust and burst into the It's like in the middle of the summer when it is so hot. How hot is it? It is so hot that you can crack an egg and it'll actually fry on the sidewalk. That's what we're talking about here. But it's not the fact. Moses has probably seen a number of bushes just go and they burn up. But what caught his attention was the fact that the bush was burning, but it was not burned up. Now, this is not just some miraculous supernatural event in the desert. It is, but it's not just that. The bush that will not burn is witness to the indestructibility of God's plan and purpose, that God's intended plan and purpose is indestructible. And that's true for your life, and that's true for my life. That's what the bush that will not burn up. God's plan is fireproof. It is bulletproof. It is bombproof. It is indestructible. But there's also this. In verse 10 it says, God says, So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now I want us to put ourselves in Moses' spot for a moment. And this is what I think Moses is thinking. This is your plan. Your plan is that you want me to go back there and you want me to tell my family nation that it's time to go home. Okay. And you also want me to go down and tell Pharaoh to give them up and let them go. Do you really think that the family nation and Pharaoh are going to listen to me? We know Moses, don't we? Because we're not that different from him. And Moses is like Abraham and Joseph before him. And he's like us. We have this conscious awareness of our human weakness. You want us to do what? But the other side of that coin is this, that Moses is like Abraham and Joseph before him, and he's also like us because at the same time, while we are consciously aware of our human weakness, we are also consciously aware of God's presence. And that brings us to this. God's second action that he takes shows them and us his indefinable character and unchanging presence. And he shows this by revealing his name, I am who I am. When we talk about God, when you and I describe God, We usually use nouns, you know, person, place, thing to describe who he is. And we have our names for God. We have God and Lord and Jehovah and Yahweh. And the people of Israel had their nouns as well. 
They're a little bit more complicated, like Elohim and El Shaddai, God Almighty and Elyon, but these are nouns. They don't do that much because God cannot be defined. God is not a definition. God cannot be reduced to a noun. And when Moses hears, I am who I am, he hears something completely different than a definition. Now follow me. The name, I am who I am, is a verb, not a noun. And a verb is an action word. It expresses action. And this is what I am who I am means. It means that God is present. T.H. Verizon said, I am who I am means I am there. Whenever or wherever it may be, I am really there. God is present. But it doesn't stop there. I am who I am also means this. It means that not only is God present, but that he is actively present. Now pause for a moment and think about that. God is not just present in your life. He is actively engaged in the affairs of our lives. That's what it means, actively. I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned. That's what he says to Moses. And he says the same thing to you and I. I've seen, I hear. I have come. God is actively present in our lives. And for you and me, our only option and our only response is to be actively present in return. Or not. The third action that God takes is with Pharaoh. And primarily with Pharaoh, but also with Egypt and with Israel and with us. And this is God's third action is he reveals his power. And he does that through the ten plagues. Now, God's power is seen in the fact that God is using Pharaoh's disobedience to accomplish his overall plan. Pharaoh has made a decision in his life that his life is going to take a direction that's not going to follow God's plan. And God shows his power, first of all, by using Pharaoh's disobedience to do what he wants to do. It's worth noting in the biblical text, the first five plagues, it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then the last five plagues, it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God used Pharaoh's stubbornness to unleash not just one plan, one plague, but ten plagues so that he might reveal his undeniable 
power. You see, in Moses' time, there were no atheists. People believed in many gods. And the question was this, who is the most powerful God? And Numbers tells us these words. Numbers tells us that the plagues were judgment and they were signs against the Egyptian gods. Now, I don't have time to get into this. Matter of fact, we may not even see it. What happened here? We lost our visual. Here we are. Where's my... There was a really nice chart with the ten plagues and how God, the text of how each plague is an assault against each Egyptian god. Ten plagues. But the final action that God takes, the final action that God takes is with us. And he shows us his greatest act of deliverance of all time. And that is through Jesus Christ. Remember what I said at the beginning that the Exodus points to the second mightiest act of God's deliverance in all of time? And it also points to the greatest, the mightiest act of deliverance of God of all time. And that's through Jesus Christ. Now, if you know anything of the story, this is what happens. The last plague is the worst. And it is a plague against the firstborn sons of the Egyptians and the Hebrews. But the Hebrews are told to go and take a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and to take the blood and to put it across the, the doorpost, the, what is that thing called? Whatever that's called. And the doorpost, and they are to smear blood all over that, and when the death angel comes over Egypt and the death angel sees the blood on the door, he will pass over. And that's where we get the beginning of Passover. Exodus 12 says, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. And the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Israel. I want you to pause. The single greatest act of God's deliverance in all of time and history is this. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And he has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves through Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, Colossians tells us, is the firstborn, but he is also the Passover lamb. This is where the story is going. This is the hint that God gives us here in Exodus. It's about Jesus. And Jesus came so that each and every person could metaphorically apply his blood to the doorpost of our hearts and that we could be 
rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves. That's the story. That's where it's going. And the Passover lamb and Jesus being our Passover lamb is what this is all about. So let me ask you a question. Have you, have I, taken advantage of God's offer of love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ? Have I applied what God did in, through, and as Jesus Christ in my life? Have I said yes to God's offer of love and forgiveness? And I know that many of us have, but maybe some of you in the room and some of you watching online have not. But this is where the story is going. And I pray that over these next weeks and months, that this reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ will become true and rich and real and personal in our lives. We're going to get to that. And today can be the day that you can say yes. I don't understand it all, but yes, I want to say yes to God's offer of love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. If that's you, I want to pray for you in just a moment. But for the rest of us, on your seat when you came in this morning, there was a little card like this. And what I want you to do this morning, I'm going to pray first. I'm going to pray for those that are considering saying yes to God's offer of love and forgiveness. But I want us to take this card in our hand. Take it in your hand and just hold it there for a minute. And I want you to think about somebody that you would be committed to pray for their salvation over these next weeks and months as we journey through the story. And in a moment, I'm going to get you to write that name on this card. And I've made them small enough so that they could fit in your wallet. So hold the card up, would you please? Hold it there for a moment. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, this morning, what you have done in the Exodus is amazing. And it is amazing in the lives of Israel and the real people of God, the chosen generation of God in that ancient time. And even today, they celebrate Passover every year. And they rehearse this story of Exodus because the Exodus is a profound illustration of the power of your deliverance. But it also illustrates the deliverance that comes through Jesus Christ in our lives as people. And so, Father, today I pray this morning for those that are on the journey of saying yes to your offer of love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, that, Lord, today that they will inch closer to that. And maybe there's some this morning that will say, yes, I'm ready to say yes. And so, Father, as they say yes, Lord, may they know forgiveness. May they just know, Lord, what it means to be changed and transformed by the presence of God. And what it means to become the children of God, the sons and daughters of God. Father, today, for the rest of us, we hold in our hands a card 
And in a minute, we're going to write somebody's name on this card. Somebody's salvation that we are going to commit ourselves to pray for. It could be a spouse, it could be a child, it could be a parent, it could be a sibling, it could be a friend, it could be a co-worker, it could be a complete stranger that we just met and we know their name. So Father, we ask now that you will, by the Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us right now of what name we are supposed to put on this card. And all over the room, you are bringing names to people's minds. Names, names, names. And Lord, as we put them on the card, that Father, that you will bring, that you will stir faith in the hearts of those of them that are on these cards, and that you would open their eyes, that they might open their hearts to the love of God in Jesus Christ. So I want you to take your card now. There's a pen probably in the pew in front of you, the seat in front of you. And I just want you to write a name on it. Write a name on it. Just write a name on it. Just move around. If you need to get a pen, you need to borrow a pen, just take a minute. Write a name on it. I got my name, I just don't have my pen. Write your name, whatever name it is, it's on it. You there? Now, for those of you that don't always quite pay attention, take out your phone and take a picture of your card. Because it's unlikely that you're going to lose your phone although it's not above us. Now, if you've got a name on the card, stand with me. Actually, everybody stand. It's just less awkward. And lift your card in the air. Father, there are hundreds of names of hundreds of people Precious lives, eternal souls. So, Father, as we hold this card in the air, not that you need it, Lord, but look at our name. Look at the name. And we pray, Father, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us over these next weeks and months as we go through the story to be committed to pray for the salvation of the person's name, the person that is represented in the card. And Father, we would do that hopefully every day, but at least every week. And Father, we ask that now you would even, because we already know you are at work, Lord, we ask that even now you would begin to stir faith in their hearts. And Father, that you will open their eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that they would open their hearts to him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.